Okay. So Elisa is going to distract you all with uh, plates of goodies, <clears throat> which you've already eaten off the extraordinary table. So this is for later, right? <laughs> Just in case. Can you sleep at night? Sometimes. Yeah, it tends to wake me up. So it's just one of those things that it just lingers. Yeah. I'm just glad it isn't going deeper. If it goes deeper it becomes bronchitis and or worse. So I'm grateful I'm able to get rid of it. Well, a year ago. We studied the Nicene Creed, and if you wish, you can go back and listen to that particular class, because it's on the, uh, the Inner Altar website, because I had, you know, it was a year ago, I was sitting there going, all right, our, our church started reciting the Nicene Creed on Sunday mornings without explanation, and all I could figure is the reason we said it is because it's nice. Um, so we studied it and found out exactly why. And yet, on alternative weeks and months, we recite the, the Apostles' Creed. Both of them affirm the virgin birth. You have the Apostles' Creed saying, Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed, as we said this morning, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. And we, as Christians, as members of the Church of God, we affirm this. Why? It's ridiculous. It's unscientific. It's impossible. If you were to walk out into a group of unbelievers and the question comes, do you believe in the virgin birth? And you go, absolutely. And went, oh, you're such an idiot. You have been just, you know, you've been bamboozled by the church. And all they want is your money. And then they go off on some other tangent. A fellow by the name of Bishop Spong, who's, I should say, the late Bishop Spong, um, wrote a number of books that were anti-Christian. And yes, he was an Episcopal bishop. But he wrote a number of books that were anti-Christian, and he called the virgin birth the over-exuberant early church trying to claim Christ's deity. He called it the entrance myth. He also had the exit myth, the resurrection, which he said was also made up. My guess is that right now, since he is the late Bishop Spong, he is currently feeling the heat for his opinions. Yes, you figured that joke out. Nine years ago, December 2013, in his sermon at North Point Church in Georgia, 
and Andy Stanley, who is a prominent evangelical preacher, said, quote, Christianity does not hinge on the truth or the stories around the birth of Jesus. It only hinges on the resurrection. Then he said, and I watched the video to make sure I wasn't mis he wasn't being misquoted, they had to come up with some kind of myth to give Jesus street credit. Seriously. You're going to take a foundational belief in the church and say, well, they had to come up with something just so that he would be credible. But we affirm it. So aren't we a bunch of idiots? We've been bamboozled, or have we? Well, I've handed out the basic and the most uh, prominent texts that discuss the virgin birth, starting with Isaiah 7.14, also Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. And you will see the word virgin in Isaiah 17, right there in the first line. You will find it, that same passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verses 23. You see the quotation? So you have Matthew citing the Old Testament verbatim. And then over in Luke, in the Luke passage, you find it in verse 27 and verse 34, where Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? So you have the Bible itself making the claim. Now, there's a problem for those. I should have brought my can of worms. <laughs> uh, actually, I will be bringing it back uh, the next time we meet in January because we're going to be in Romans 9, which is truly a can of worms, but that's another story. Um, you'll see it when we get there. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That was in the King James Bible, as you see it. It was in all the various updates until around 1950, the Revised Standard Version came out. The Revised Standard Version translated that verse as, Behold, the young woman shall conceive, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that created a firestorm of controversy. Because people were saying, How dare you mistranslate the Old Testament like that? How dare you? And the Revised Standard Version was nicknamed the Revised Standard Perversion. Now, for those of you who use the ESV, which is our church's translation, the ESV is an updated version of the Revised Standard Perversion, believe it or not. That's where its foundation came from. Uh, they obviously corrected the error Let's call it, quote-unquote, an error. And let's look at the Hebrew. So we're going to look at the biblical origins of this controversy. Now, um, we have a Hebrew scholar in the room. She did correct everything I say. Uh, we'll just work through it. Correct him in French. 
Yeah, corrected in French of the week, so I won't know that you're correcting me. <laughs> Perfect. <coughs> in Hebrew, there are two words that can be used here. So in the Hebrew, there is Alma, and the alternative is Bethula. The one that's in 714 is Alma. The one that is in, and it means technically young woman. Which is why the Revised Standard Version translated it as young woman. They were being literal. The word Bethula also means young woman, but is more prominently is translated as virgin. So why in our Holy Scripture was a different word used? So here's the problem. Even in English, it's not consistently translated virgin or young woman throughout the Old Testament. It depends on the context. So the word Bethula, which is not used here, it's used 50 times in the Old Testament. 50 times. Only 21 of them does it mean virgin. The other times it means young woman. Oh, doesn't that just clear it all up? Alma is only used nine times. Three of them are very specifically virgin. Which means the other six, it's used as young woman. So it sounds, doesn't it sound to you that I'm starting to agree with the mistranslation? But here comes some of the challenges. In Genesis 24:16, Rebecca is called a Bethula, a young woman who no man has known, meaning has not had relations. The problem is, if he meant virgin, why did he add the phrase that no, no man had known? There would have been a redundant statement. There would have been no reason to qualify the statement to give it a virgin or young woman definition, unmarried. So it runs into some challenges. The other thing that Pastor Jim was preaching about last week, by the way, when he announced that his sermon was going to be in the virgin birth, and I knew I was going to be teaching on it today, I went, oh no! <laughs> He's going to take away all my thunder. All my work is going to be just repeated. But of course he went a different direction, which was a wonderful sermon, by the way. But he brought up the Jewish tradition and their practice in marriage is you were betrothed technically meant you were married, but they didn't actually get married for a full year. So they were legally married in the eyes of God, in the eyes of society, for a full year before that marriage was consummated 
and the family was built. They did not even live together. Yeah. Somewhere, I hope you're going to tell us about why. What's the background? Yes, thank you. <laughs> why? Why did they do that? Why is that when culture? I, why is that? Culture? We don't know. I was, I was just or looking at other cultures. We have no idea. Because some cultures want them to be together to make sure the woman can have kids. That's part of it. Yeah. Part of it that she didn't wasn't pregnant at the time. But there was just this tradition, and we don't know where it came from. Really? It's not even really in the Old Testament as a rule. It's not in Levitical law or anything. It just developed in their culture. So we know that it happened this way, and we know that a young woman became marriageable when she was able to have children. Yeah? I, I, I don't want Go ahead. To I'm just thinking what you were talking about. Up until about over a hundred, maybe a hundred years ago or less, just even in our own societies, a breach of, you could, a female could sue in court if an engagement was broken or, you know, they have letters, they, they, there were lawsuits and things that happened of, of breaking of a, um, a relationship and all the person had to do was provide love letters from, that, that was happening at least in the Western civilization for decades and decades and decades and that would have stemmed from, there was always something until our more A form of a contract had been yeah, in, could, brought together. We get engaged. And that was considered, if you violated that? <coughs> right. But the law did not say you were married. No, no, I know. I just think that, that, yeah. that there was something about that atmosphere that still carried on through the centuries yeah. until, you know, yep. the last couple of generations, three generations. Yep. Sorry. That's all right. That. So, it's not terribly clear overwhelmingly clear that this was a mistranslation to say it was young woman. However, <coughs> this word, Alma, is never used of a married woman anywhere in the Old Testament. And that's an important thing to realize. There was no one, in fact, Martin Luther offered a reward of $45,000 in today's money if anyone could prove that the word Alma was used of a married woman in the Old Testament. It wasn't. Until Mary is called a virgin in the New Testament. So you see, there is this idea that something different is going on when you have the story of Mary. Now this is the Hebrew. Let's go into the Greek. Remember, the Old Testament was translated into Greek around 200 BC, something like that, 150 BC, by Jewish scholars. So these are non-Christian Jews, because there wasn't a Christianity yet, and they were translating in Egypt, in Alexandria, they were translating the Old Testament into Greek 
so that the Greek-speaking community could read the Old Testament, which meant they needed to translate this word into Greek. The Greek word they chose is the Greek word Parthenos. And that means virgin. There is an alternative Greek word Neonis, which means young woman, and they did not use that word. They had a choice. They could use the word virgin or they use the word young woman. They chose the word virgin to translate this word. The Jewish scholars did this. So, when you look at the Matthew passage that you have in front of you, where it's quoting Isaiah, it's using this word, Parthenos. It's also the same word you find over in Luke, in Luke 27 and in Luke 34. Parthenos, a very specific word meaning virgin. Consequently, if you want to be consistent in your translation theory, you're not going to want to use this word here. You want to use this word here. So to change this to young woman, the translators of the RSV were not known to be for being conservative. They were trying to make a statement, saying, well, we're being more literal. No, you're actually not. You're actually being inconsistent in the history of the usage of this word. Have I covered this well? Yes. Okay. Because I'm sitting there going, ask Tom. <laughs> Please have him here to go and say that I'm okay. So here's one of the interesting little tri trivia tidbits of the, of, of the past. Charles Spurgeon, the amazing preacher. He said, quote, Isaiah 7.14 is one of the most difficult in all of the Word of God. It might be so. I certainly didn't think it was until I read all the commentators. And then I came away completely confused. So you read it on the surface. Your first reading of the Isaiah passage, the Matthew passage, the Luke passage, the Bible is saying something very specific about it. It's all of us trying to figure it out that mess it up. And even my preparation for this um, class, well, I'll even show you. So there's this little tiny book. Okay, it's 380 pages long, called The Virgin Birth of Christ by J. Gresham Machen. I mean, holy smoke. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I pulled out every one of the books that I have on the Apostles' Creed. I have about 25 of them. 
I pulled out all of the works that I had on the historical Jesus. So I have this one called 40 Questions About the Historical Jesus. He has three of his questions are just on the virgin birth. Over and over and over again, this controversy, and we're realizing the origins of the controversy are those who are trying to explain the supernatural or explain it away. Let's look at some of those. Well, actually, before, before we get that far, has the virgin birth been taught consistently throughout church history? Would you imagine the answer is technically yes. In the Orthodox Christian tradition, both Catholic and Protestant have been very consistent. You can go back to the early church of Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Basil, Jerome, Augustine, all of them saw a three-way connection of Christ's conception, the nature of Christ, meaning that meant he was divine and human, and the work of Christ, meaning he had to have divinity and humanity to be the sacrifice for our sins. Otherwise, he's just a gather guy. Nice guy. That's why we call it the Nicene Creed. Sorry. <laughs> it's going to happen a third time. No, I'm sorry, it won't. I mean, I had someone write, virgin birth? Maybe. Three wise men? Not in a million years are there three wise men. Three idiots, yes, but not wise men. Anyway. You start looking at some of these early teachers. So Irenaeus taught around 130 AD. So he's, what, 50 years? Maybe 60 after Paul? He writes, He would not have been one truly possessing flesh and blood by which he redeemed us unless he had summed up his human the humanity in himself. Then Augustine, in the late 300s, said, So what do, we, what do the so-called wise and prudent think of this great miracle? Well, they prefer to think of it as a nice story rather than a hard fact. So when it comes to Christ appearing as man and God, clearly a divine <laughs> consideration, they run into trouble. They think it beneath them to believe that there are things that aren't human that are in fact things that are divine. To them, it's just plain embarrassing that God would walk around in a silly, ill-fitting body. To us, of course, it's a genuinely encouraging sight. To put it another way, which will truly appear perverse to the unwise and the imprudent, the more impossible the virgin birth of a human being appears to them, the more divine it appears to us. That was 1,700 years ago. We're still fighting this battle. So I, you know, I pulled up this J. Gresham Machen book, and this happens to be uh, just fun little fact. It's a first edition, but it's 90 years old. It's published in 1930. Machen was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. 
And Princeton was in their throes of their shift toward liberalism. And Machen was fighting them in his writing, in his speeches, in his work in the classrooms, everything. He was fighting this shift. And it got to the point that in 1929, he left the seminary and founded Westminster Theological Seminary, which is still around today. And out of Westminster came Ligonier, for those of you who are wondering where that trail came from. In 1930, a year after he started the seminary, he wrote this book. And you wonder, he must have been working on it during the time of the height of the controversy because his leaders, his fellow professors were not believing in the virgin birth. And so he wrote this extraordinary tome which has yet to be superseded in 90 years. No one else has written a book as extensive and as widely respected as this one. In fact, the head of Harvard Divinity School, about 15 years after this book came out, who believed nothing of his conclusions, said, no one has yet to address his arguments. And you want to go, so why don't you try? <laughs> Extraordinary. When you have an important doctrine that seems to be dismissed. But for 1,500 years, there was basically not a lot of controversy that, was, that got any traction related to the virgin birth. But beginning in the 1800s with the growth of uh, German theological liberalism and the de deconstruction of the faith, over and over again, it started being picked at and plucked at. And today, we, have, we end up with a, professor, a pastor of a major evangelical church saying the virgin birth has no meaning. You take away one piece, which means it undermines another piece, which undermines another piece, which undermines another piece, and here we are. Well, one of the challenges of the virgin birth, and I'm going to get too far into this, but you have what we, when we taught in Romans chapter 5, we were talking about Adam and Adam's sin being imputed to us. And we were born in sin, right? Therefore, we have need for salvation. So what about Jesus? Didn't he get born into sin? Didn't he have a human nature? Whoops. Now we got problem. Well, that's a common idea. He didn't have Adam's seed because he didn't have a earthly father. But that's suggesting that the woman does not have sin. So to fix that, the Catholic Church in 1850 declared Mary as sinless. The Immaculate Conception. They fixed it. <laughs> because uh, for, for, I guess, what, 1,800 years, they were kind of confused and figuring out, oh, let's just not talk about that, just move it along. And, and realizing, wait, we, need to, we, we venerate Mary. We need to make her perfect, too. 
So the Pope declared her as being conceived without sin to solve the dilemma of original sin and the imputation of sin in Romans 5. They claimed that Mary's mom, St. Anne, conceived and Mary was freed from all original sin. Well, I'm not going to get too, go too far into that other than to say there's absolutely no biblical, biblical basis in that at all. So you kind of go, well, Steve, then what about original sin? What about the humanity, the sin of Adam being passed on? That's why it's called a miracle. Just, it's kind of the bottom line. Go ahead. I'm just in the Catholic teaching, if Anne gave birth to Mary and Mary didn't have any original sin, then don't you just have to keep going back? <laughs> That's part of the problem. And would have to be without sin. And, you know, you just... <laughs> yeah. In other words, there was another miracle mm-hmm. at Mary's birth. In order that there could be another miracle at Jesus' birth. It, it, it's illogical um, and completely unnecessary, at least in my opinion. So one of the other things gets thrown at everybody is that, well, obviously, if you believe in the myth of the virgin birth, you are simply um, repeating another one of the various virgin birth myths that are out there. And there are a lot of them. We usually don't talk about them on Sunday morning in church, but they're out there. In 3050 BC, well, that's a kind of a while ago, the god Amon, or Re, in Egypt, lay with the mortal queen Amhos and produced Hatshepsut. Poor kid. Spelled H A T, hat, S H E. P-U-T, hat she put. Wow, poor kid in elementary school. Anyway, uh, the nicknames he must have had. Anyway, but he was supposed to be immaculate, sinless, and divine, which meant all subsequent pharaohs were divine. And remember, they were treated as if they were divine. Alexander the Great. When he conquered Egypt, the Egyptians were a little, well, they weren't very happy to be conquered, but they weren't about to appreciate Alexander. I mean, he's a foreigner. So they came up with the story that Zeus, in the form of a snake, lay with Olympias, and thus Alexander was divine. He too was divine, just like their pharaohs, which meant he could rule over Egypt without any problem of respectability. Caesar Augustus, same thing. So the Romans come in. The first Caesar They say he was conceived by the god Apollo. And this was actually written by Suetonius, who was a Roman historian in 119 AD. He wrote a book called The Twelve Caesars. 
and we have the original manuscript. A few chapters from Julius Caesar are missing and they haven't been able to find them. <coughs> but his material on Augustus makes the claim that he was divine. Thus, the Caesars were divine. There's a, in the Assyrian world, there is Sem, uh, Semiramis, Semi who was the rife, wife of Nimrod, the god of the sea, gave birth to Zamas, Tamas and was conceived by a sunbeam. Obviously a virgin birth. In China, there's the ancient mother cult called Qing, Xing Mu. And if you look at their artwork, they look like the nativity with animals around a stall. Buddha. Buddha was conceived when an elephant entered his mother's belly. Now all I can think is, it had to be a five-year-old. That was his only explanation. Look how big mama is. An elephant had to be going there. Anyway, it just, I know I'm being mocking it. Here's another one. Jesus was the child of a Roman soldier who had an affair with Mary. And in Nazareth, there was a, um, a Roman garrison that was, uh, was housed by German mercenaries who had come down and they had forced the, their way in. And there were a lot of stories of inappropriate or rape or whatever. And there were a lot of children born by these ruffians. But to make it even better, this story claims that Jesus was blonde. And thus he had to have been conceived by a German um, Aryan, the Aryan race. Isn't that incredible? You kind of go, yeah, but we don't believe that. But these people believe these things in history, even up to today, so all Christianity do, do, was doing was copying one of the old myths. Except when you think about the story itself, almost all of those other stories, other than the last one, um, has an animal, a God turning into an animal, and then doing something. Not the Jesus story, not even close. Here's another objection. This story is only found in two of the Gospels. It's only in Matthew and in Luke. So it must have not actually happened because it's not in Mark and it's not in John. I'm going to throw this question to the group. If someone hits you with that objection, how do you answer? I mean, the resurrection's in all four, but... The birth? No. It was already known back. I mean, it was known of the people, and so they didn't address it. They had other issues. But if it's that important, oh. wouldn't John and Mark talk about it? I mean, of course, remember, there's no genealogy in right. John or Mark either, but that, we'll put that aside. How, how would we how we answer this? Here's my answer. Do you like the Sermon on the Mount? Do you believe in the, the principles that are in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, yeah. It's only in Matthew and Luke. Mm 
It's not in Mark and John. Look in your blended harmony. <laughs> Look in the index in the back. It's not there. So does that mean we discount that as well? Well, no. Then be consistent in your rejection. You can't do that. So then comes the argument, but it's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul never addresses it. If it's that important, why didn't Paul talk about it? That that throws some really interesting little twists into it. But think of the message of Paul. What was Paul trying to teach in his journeys? That's not Hmm? the resurrection. Primarily the resurrection. Jesus. And who is Jesus? Mm The Jesus he met on the road to Damascus that changed his life and he then spoke of who this Jesus is and the redemption from that. But then you might say, but if the virgin birth is that important, how come Paul didn't just kind of break out in Romans or in some of these other books and say, and this? Well, he doesn't explicitly but he does implicitly. Here's some verses. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 1.3 Concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And Romans 2.7, the great um, passage where he is... Uh, talks about God, it's uh, my word here, self-emptying himself. He says, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And yet in other places, he talks about Jesus as divine, very explicitly. You can't miss it in Colossians. He existed before time began. And yet here, he's talking about him being born of a woman. The key here is the Greek words that he used for born. He used the word genomai, or genomai, depending on your pronunciation of the G. Which means to be born. And you'll find that word in Galatians 4.4, Romans 1.3, and Philippians 2.7, the three verses I read. He did not use the word genado, <coughs> which means begotten. He is specifically speaking about the human birth of Jesus. Very specifically. And in each of these cases, He's also accentuating the two natures of Christ, his humanity and his deity, in those verses. He doesn't have to say the virgin birth. Just the simple fact that he is human and divine together, it was, to use what you said earlier, it was understood. It wasn't a debate. Then, let's play another little fun little thing, which... You know, sometimes you look at verses and you're not sure 
what they're talking about. But in John 8.41, the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are arguing with Jesus. And they made an accusation, or their defense, is that they were not illegitimate. Quote, we are not born of sexual immorality, which suggests that there may have been a question being directed at Jesus himself about his origins, even at that time. You can imagine that the virgin birth was probably not something that they kept quiet during those years. We don't see it because that, <laughs> the simple fact that Jesus was calling himself God was enough to get a little bit of uh, stirring going on. And the last thing is you can't ignore John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory full of grace and truth. It is. In fact, I have another handout to discuss that very thing. Ironically. <laughs> and this one, I'm going to make you work because I have fill in the blanks. I'm tired of just giving you all the answers in my handouts. I'm going to make you work a little bit. Now, it, I'll just give you the answers. You won't have to try to figure it out. Um, and this is based on an article that I found from Don Stewart, who's, he co-authored books with Josh McDowell and others on apologetics. And then I also, um, I adapted it and added the fifth point, uh, which I think is an important one for us. This is answer, trying to answer the question, why is the virgin birth so important? Why is it so critical? But before I get into that, I'm going I'm to tell a little story and see what you think. It's a little dangerous because it's going to make you think. On a morning you've got gingerbread and other things and you're making you, you uh, a little, little less uh, sharp. Um, there's a pastor at Trinity Bible Church um, Homer Goddard, who was an interim pastor for a couple years, and then an executive pastor there uh, with Joel Eitzness years ago. And I was talking to him a variety of, on a variety of topics, and we began talking about theology and some of the foundational beliefs in the church. And he had attended Princeton Seminary in the 50s, I think it was, 50s, early 60s. And he said there was a visiting professor there that year by the name of Emil Bruner. Now, Emil Bruner, for anyone who has any knowledge and background of some of the controversial teachers uh, of that era, Emil Bruner was a neo-Orthodox German theologian who he would poke at various key beliefs but in general, he was very orthodox, even as a German quote-unquote liberal, except when it came to the virgin birth. 
So Dr. Dr. Goddard was saying that he was in Emil Brunner's class on the New Testament. And in that class, Emil Brunner basically wiped out the virgin birth and then continued teaching. And I got really upset because I'm sitting there going, you can't do that because it's so foundational. You take that away, everything else falls apart. You can't do that. So I don't think Dr. Brunner is a Christian. That week, Emil Brunner preached at the Princeton Chapel service to the students. And it was such a powerful evangelical, evangelistic sermon that 12 students came to Christ at the end of that presentation. Dr. Goddard said, I was there and I would, my jaw was on the ground. This glorious presentation of the gospel. He said, so I came to the conclusion, and I'm quoting, that Emil Brunner was a Christian who had a hole in his theology. <laughs> so let me ask you, is that an accurate statement? Can you be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth? Yeah, you're all very uncomfortable right now. You don't want to raise your hand and vote. Um, it's a tough one. Now, here's another question. Can you become a Christian and not even know about the virgin birth? And there is absolutely yes, unequivocally. In fact, I'll bet the majority of us in this room came to Christ depending on when it was or what your background is, without ever hearing of the virgin birth. It was the gospel presentation of our sinfulness, our need for salvation and Christ's death on the cross. It didn't start with, you got to believe in the virgin birth, and we go, are you kidding me? See ya. No. Are you a sinner? Are, do you feel the power of the Spirit convicting you of sin? Absolutely. Well, then here, here you go. You see the difference? Now, I'm not going to have, unless you want to dive into this and get yourself in can of worms um, area. It is an interesting question, isn't it? At the same time, if you are going to find a new church, let's say you move out of town or you move someplace else, find out what they believe. Because this is foundational. And if they throw this one out, you're going to have to kind of start wondering, well, what else don't they, you know, what else don't they affirm? So let's look at our handout. Why is it important? Jesus had a heavenly origin. Had a heavenly origin. This talks about his divinity. Without the virgin birth, Jesus is just another guy. And oh, let me just tell you, I read some of the most fascinating things. Because <clears throat> there's one argument that against the virgin birth that talks about parth parthenogenesis. So, 
parthenogenesis, in other words, animals or creatures that can reproduce without the alternative gender. There are, it's in nature, it has happened. It's not like a dog suddenly has another dog, but there are creatures that can create in and of themselves. And so they're using that argument against the virgin birth. And wow, obviously, because they were trying so hard to scientifically explain the unexplainable. So I read one article, and I, I, I could find it. I brought it here, but I, I don't think you want to re have me read an entire discussion about DNA and the scientific realities of DNA because there's another uh, theory out there that Jesus was a clone. That God knew how to strip the DNA from the egg and create because he could do that. Well, if that were the case, and if there was no man involved, Jesus would have been a woman. Kind of blows that theory up. Except for the new transgenderisms out there that are saying, uh, there, there are now, quote unquote, transgender experts that are saying that Jesus was transgender, didn't have a gender. Because obviously he didn't have a father. Anyway. <sighs> Sigh, deep sigh. As you have time this week, if you'd like, read the paragraphs that are here. We won't do it here during our time because we're just going to discuss the general idea, but it's extrapolated in this conversation. The second thing, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice. This talks about the atonement. And without the atonement, and the atonement had to happen with a sinless being in place of the sinful one to be sacrificed to atone for the sin. And therefore, we are justified and made right with God because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. We discussed all this. When we, did, when we looked at Romans 5 and some of the other passages. But this is crucial. Our salvation is based on who Jesus was. Without that, and if you plink away at his, who he was, then the atonement was just a guy who got caught up in a revolution and got crucified. And then, of course, we had to make up a myth about him dying and coming back to life, too, so... There's that. Number three, it shows the uniqueness of Christ. As I, write, as I pulled out here, is that no one else has ever come into the world the same way as Jesus. The unique and miraculous nature of Jesus carried on through his entire life. His birth was a miracle. His public ministry were full of miracles. He miraculously lived a sinless life, miraculously came back from the dead, and left the world in a miraculous way, and he will return in a miraculous way. There is no one greater, none greater, than Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the Bible declares it. So, here's the problem. 
if you want to discount or you want to explain away the virgin birth, you have to say the Bible was wrong. The Bible made it up. Oh, that's a bad thing. So what else did they make up? You start, again, pulling away, uh, to use a grandson uh, example, you start pulling away the bottom Legos of a tower, the tower will fall down. Or if you've ever played Jenga, and you pull the wrong piece out, it's, it collapses. You might be able to pull out that virgin birth, and it might be a little shaky. Well, that means there's something else you could pull out. Because you can then attack the veracity of Scripture. I'm going to read a uh, quote from Don McLeod. He says, The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament. Think of it. It's, the whole New Testament starts with this. It's blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs under the same order as itself. And if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. It starts with this. The birth of Christ begins the rest of the story. And if we take that away, it all starts to fall apart. And lastly, Christianity believes in the supernatural. That's one of the unique things, I think, that we tend to not dwell on a lot. But think of our faith and what it's based on. And everything in the Christ story, everything in the Old Testament stories, it's miracle after miracle, supernatural intervention after supernatural intervention. And after a while, we have become, to use Pastor Jim's example, we have become immune to it. We're immunized. We don't even think about it as being special. C.S. Lewis, and I've quoted here, in his book Miracles, argues that once we allow for a theistic worldview, one in which a supernatural God exists and is involved in the natural order of things, then supernatural events are not simply possible, they're expected. And if supernatural events are to be expected, then things like a virgin giving birth or the sun being stopped from shining are the kinds of things we ought to expect to happen in the world in which we live. That's a powerful thought. And what I love about that last paragraph is we toss in Luke 1.37, which is in your original handout, where Mary says, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's supernatural. But for Mary, it's like, she can do anything. Absolutely anything. And I trust that he will. 
So I found this one quote that goes back to the earlier question about belief in the virgin birth. This guy Clayton Bell wrote, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian. Such a, a rejection, however, leaves faith incomplete and less than biblical. What makes a person a Christian is that person's faith, trust, and confidence in Jesus Christ as his or her own Lord and Savior. But on what evidence do we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Is it not the evidence found in the New Testament? Then how can we reject the evidence found in the New Testament? Then how can we reje reject the evidence from the same New Testament concerning the virgin birth of Jesus? The book that tells us how we can become children of God also tells us how the Son of God became a man. Because God could do that, he can also produce new life in all those who seek to trust him. That's the key. You believe one, you must believe the other. Or you come to faith and these other things you start going, whoa, I have to believe that? Uh-huh. If you're going to believe the totality of Scripture, if you believe in the veracity of Scripture, but if you want to pick and choose which scriptures you believe and not believe, you're going to get yourself in serious trouble. Even the most brilliant scholars of history tie themselves up in knots and get themselves into debates or nuances of words and they start messing around with all this and they end up as Charles Spurgeon reads it and goes I thought I knew until I read and I was like now nah, I'm confused uh, I feel the same way I come to a passage like this and I start reading all of the arguments against and all the skeptics and all the those who are trying to undermine our faith and I'll tell you they're, they're smart people they're really smart people And they're very lost people. Yeah, I uh, remember uh, Gina showing me a, a program years ago with a new theory, the string theory. And you can move across different dimensions with these avenues of strings between galaxies or dimensions. And all of a sudden it hit me, yeah, they have to keep coming up with excuses. They have to because their whole lives fall apart if they have to be truthful and honest and believe in God and Almighty Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, they, so it's always going to be all these arguments, defenses, because their whole life depends upon them denying Him. Yeah. If we can dismiss the supernatural, we can dismiss Jesus. It's that simple. <coughs> if we undermine who Jesus is, then we don't have to deal with our sin. And we can live fat and happy and sassy and die in that sin. So I'm going to end with a paragraph from St. John Chrysostom in his 4th century Christmas sermon. What shall we say? 
How shall I describe this birth to you? For this wonder fills me with astonishment. The ancient of days has become an infant. He who sits on the sublime and heavenly throne now lies in a manger. He who cannot be touched, who is simple, without complexity and incorporeal, now lies subject to the hands of men. He who has broken the bonds of sinners is now bound by an infant's bands. But he has decreed that ignominy shall become honor. Infamy will be clothed with glory and total humiliation will be the measure of his goodness. The contrast of the almighty powerful God who created the universe, who created string theory is a little baby helpless who's here for us because as it says at the end of the passage God with us his name shall be called Emmanuel let's pray Lord thank you for our time together to be able to explore pull things apart put them back together just in our weak attempt to understand something that's so extraordinary, so supernatural, so out of this world and incomprehensible. And yet, that's who you are. You did this out of love for us to send your son in the form of a child. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. God with us. In Jesus' name, amen.